Uh, we've had a great event in our family uh, this past weekend. Uh, my daughter, Mary Beth, finally got home from Peru, and uh, we're glad to have her home. As a, as a matter of fact, come on up here real quick, Mary Beth. Uh, I've had a lot of you uh, asking if, if she'd be giving any kind of report. My, my response was ultimately, Noel, no, not really, and, and some of y'all got offended by that. So, uh, but we do want to, um, we're going to be doing a mission report, not too distant future. As a matter of fact, uh, I should mention today we have a team in the Ukraine. So we've been to Nicaragua, we've been to Boston, we've been to Italy. Uh, right now we have a team, they landed there Friday and they're going to be there. So the week out in front, we certainly want to keep them in our prayers. And, uh, and then, of course, Mary Beth was in Peru since May 23rd. Is that when you left? May 23rd. And uh, it got home late Friday night, Saturday morning. Uh, we got f- back home finally from that already. So, uh, but Mary Beth, when you were here uh, last time, last, I guess, May 22nd, that Sunday before we took you to the airport, uh, asked you what we could pray for. And one of the things you said, you quoted Habakkuk 1.5 and said that you, you asked that we'd pray that you'd be amazed by what you see in God this summer. How, did, was that prayer answered? Yes. Okay, super, Mary Beth. Thank you. Uh, talking to teenagers, huh? <laughs> oh, that's right. Sorry, she's not a teenager anymore. She turned 20 this summer. <laughs> so, wow, eyes got big. Not a teenager. Uh, no, how did God answer that prayer? Um, well, the first way I would say was just the way he provided for every little thing. Um, my team traveled 168 hours this summer. It was a lot. And... Um, it was like really long trips and it was really hard to get transportation a lot of times. And so like all of us would be stressing out, like we're not going to get to our next village. And then like we would just sit there and pray about it. And God would send like a bus that had six open seats for our team, like every single time. It was so cool. And then the other way I saw him work was just like the power of his word. Like we talk about how the Bible is like living and active, but I really saw that this summer. We saw like people who had been given a Bible like four or five years ago, and then they read it on their own and figured it out and got saved. So that was really cool. Man, that's awesome. Mm-hmm. Saw the power of his word in places where maybe there wasn't people ministering. But they, like no missionaries. But, but they just had his word to see what God would do with that. That's awesome. You, you mentioned the travel. What were you doing, traveling from village to village? Remind everybody of what your ministry was this summer. Okay. Um, I went to 15 different villages, and we did skits, and we did music, and just like all kinds of stuff in different schools and in plazas. And then we also just lived daily life with the people. Like we would go to their fields, and we would help them in their tiendas. And then we also would play with the kids all the time. So okay. Helping them there in their tiendas is... A store. Store, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Not all of us speak Spanish here. Um, so now, uh, it, a lot of opportunity for the gospel? Yes, we shared the gospel after, well, our skits were a clear gospel presentation, and then afterwards we would share the gospel with them. And that was like one-on-one or one with a couple of people? Yes, yeah. well, it, it ranged from like we would do it for five people sometimes all the way up to like 300 people sometimes, so it wow. changed. Wow, okay. And what did you learn this summer? Um, well, a lot, but (laughs) I went in thinking, you know, that I was going to see all this fruit and that all these people would get saved. And then I didn't really see that many people get saved. And so I was like talking to God about it. And I was like, this is a little bit disappointing. I could be at home doing nothing and be able to take a shower. 
but um, <laughs> <laughs> he really uh, taught me a that. Way to express things, Mary Beth. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he just really showed me that his timing's perfect, and I don't understand his plan or his purpose, but there's no way that my little mind ever could. And that I know he called me to Peru this summer to share the gospel, and I don't know what he's going to do in those people's lives, but that was his purpose for me. And so I was doing yeah. exactly what he wanted. Yeah. And you went uh, twice, you went two weeks without a shower, right? Oh, multiple times. Multiple times. That, <laughs> the one time I got to talk to her, she told me that. And I said, now, that's not a contest, is it? You know, there's no award for this. But a lot of times it wasn't because of lack of water. It no, was, a lot of times it was because of lack of water. Okay, lack of water. And it was also cold. It was freezing. Yeah, you, you, you were staying in places where it was 30 degrees at night. There was no heat in the, in the place, so you got in the water, you just died by freezing. Right? Yeah, not worth it. Yeah, not worth it. Sometimes a shower's worth it. No. Yeah, you're back home now. It's worth it, I promise you. <laughs> so, Mary Beth, uh, a lot of folks sitting out here. Um, what would you say to somebody who was considering something like this? Now, before you even answer that question, about what 90% of the people in here just heard me say is, what would you say to somebody that's 20-something and single? But what would you say to anybody about going on to the field, especially even for an extended amount of time? Um, go. Let me tell you real fast about Precious Lloyd, who was in his late 60s, early 70s, and he felt God was calling him to Peru this summer, and he went and he was like the biggest blessing in the world. And any time that any of us college kids are like, oh, my God, I'm so tired. Then we look over at like Lloyd, like hiking up a mountain. Like, no, okay, I'm fine. Um, so, <laughs> like, you should go. We always talk about how we want to experience God and get to know God better in a deeper way. Like, God's heart is missions and the lost people. And if you really want to see God work, like actual miracles, you should definitely go. Amen. Thank you very much, Mary Beth. Glad you're home. That was wonderful. <laughs> and we won't go two weeks without a shower anymore, right? <laughs> okay, switching gears. We are very grateful to have her home. Let's be in prayer uh, for, that, for that team in Ukraine and the opportunity in front of them. They'll be doing vacation Bible school uh, with kids this week, uh, hopefully hundreds of kids and uh, working with a church there that, that uh, we've got a little bit of a partnership with. Um, switching gears here. I have uh, up here today uh, three pieces of chocolate cake. You see that cake right there? Oh, everybody gets excited now, right? Whoops. Uh, now, anybody in here praise God for chocolate? Think that's a gift from heaven? Amen. Okay, a few of you. Okay, you're going to like this then. Um, you know, chocolate cake by all standards, is the best cake of all time. I mean, I've gone to such, uh, you know, lauded sources as um, uh, Cha-Cha and uh, what else is there, Wikipedia, and they all say the all-time favorite cake is chocolate cake. So we have here, by all human standards, what is good, right? We would agree this is good. Even if it's not your favorite, it's good, right? Amen. Okay, well, you're with me so far. I need a volunteer. Thank you, James Ford. I knew you would. Come on up here. We're, we're, there you go. James is going to uh, volunteer for us. Um, he's going he's gonna to take one for the team today. Come on. There you go. Everybody, everybody give him. There we go. We're, James has been, uh, has been leading our ministry this summer, The Edge, working with uh, our 20-somethings and had a great summer. Come a little closer. I don't bite. Um, 
got three pieces of cake here. Now, they're not all cut from the same cake. There are three separate, there are three pieces from three separate cakes. All made with the exact recipe, with the exception that, now follow this. Cake number one has one tablespoon, just one, of rat poison. Okay? Cake number two, are you following me around the circle? Cake number two has five tablespoons of rat poison. And cake number three has ten tablespoons of rat poison. Now, which one would you like to eat? <laughs> A little bit of help there from the doctor. You, you, he says he doesn't want any of them. <laughs> you don't want... Now, you remember what I just said. This, this, by all standards, is good. Everybody says this is good. So you don't want... Now, as was said, this only has one tablespoon. I mean, compared to the others, this is... This is still really good. You, no, no. So, so you're so you're saying just the presence of a little bit of poison makes it no good. Okay, you're you're a tad judgmental, James. Um, you can go ahead and sit down. Thank you for your help. <laughs> James was a big help, wasn't he? He'll, he'll eat one in the next service. That's what we'll do. Yeah, uh, guys, just the presence of a little bit. And it's, it's not good anymore. I had, today, uh, or through last week, I have preached nine sermons now uh, out of the letter to the Romans. And the last four sermons have not been a, uh, they haven't been a very complimentary look at humanity, have they? Last four sermons have, have been a little bit rough as Paul has been making the case, building the case of total depravity. That, that you and I are completely and totally depraved. And that's, that's talking about our relationship with God uh, more than it is with each other. And that idea of depravity means we're, we're morally corrupt. We're not, we're not right. We're not good. We're not okay with God. Uh, total depravity means we can commit any and every sin. Now, most of us one day will die and we will not have committed every sin, will we? We won't commit every one that there is out there, but that ability is within you. Total depravity means we have sinned and we have the ability to commit any sin. In the Greek language, that word depravity means to not stand the test. And it was the idea of metals that were tested and when they were found with impurities, then they were thrown away. And they went over here on the stack, and so they became useless. And so useless also became a synonym in the Greek language for that word depraved. Because if you're depraved, if there's corruptness, if there's impurities, then you're now useless. You can't use that metal. It's, it's of no value anymore. Folks, you and I have impurities. And no matter what efforts we make, we can't remove those impurities. We, we can't do anything to, to change that about ourselves. Now, we might try to mix different things into the recipe to make ourselves righteous. We might mix different things into the recipe to, to make ourselves good. And Paul has been working through that recipe since Romans 1.18. If you, if you looked at Romans 1.18 through the end of that chapter, Paul talks about intelligence some people want to talk about how smart they are, how they understand God and can figure out life. And, and so we might add intelligence. And in 118 uh, through the end of the chapter, Paul says, you're not smart. You're, you're stupid. Man, you know what? You have disconnected yourself from a creator 
And instead you worship created things. And what sense does that make? To worship things that have been made and ignore the one who made those things. So intelligence doesn't fix the problem. Then in chapter 2, beginning in verse 1 to to 16, he deals with the moralist. He, He deals with the good person trying to live a good life. You know, live by the golden rule. You know, do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. Try, try to do good things. But he shows out that even in the moralist, the standard that they set for being good, they don't keep their own standard. Even a good person doesn't keep the, their own standard that they set, much more God's standard. Now, others will try to mix in a little religiosity. Uh, to their recipe. And so Paul takes on the religious in chapter 2, verse 17 to the end of that chapter. But not just any religious, not, not being religious in general, but he takes on the Jew, his fellow brothers. And he, and he says, you know, we look at the, those that are religious, and guess what? They have all the same sins in their life as the non-religious. They have all the same sins in their life as the unbeliever. As a matter of fact, they're worse. Because they should have known better, Right? And so whether you're pouring intelligence or morality or religiosity into the recipe, guess what? There's still depravity. There's still corruptness. And that puts us in a position of being deserving of, worthy of God's wrath. Now, as we leave chapter 2 and we, we come into chapter 3, and you may want to go ahead and open your Bible uh, with me this morning to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible with you, we've got some in the chairs in front of you. You may want to grab one and study along. You'll find Romans about halfway through the New Testament. Get past the Gospels and and Acts and you'll be in Romans. You get to Corinthians, you've gone too far. Romans chapter 3. I'm not going to read these first eight verses, but just kind of walk through them. Uh, Paul has just laid this case out of the depravity of man our deserving, uh, deservedness of God's wrath. And then he starts to answer some questions or, or maybe what somebody would bring as a rebuttal to what Paul has said. And, and in the first one, the first question in verses 1 to 2, he's dealing with the Jew who would maybe say, well, gosh, what's the advantage of being a Jew? If that doesn't make me righteous, if that doesn't solve this depravity problem, then, then what was the point? And Paul says, man, you know what? There's a lot of point. Uh, There's a lot of advantage to being a Jew. You you were the recipient of God's truth. You were the recipient of God's revelation. Now, you were supposed to have done something with it. It, you, You were supposed to have applied it to your life. You were supposed to have shared it, and you didn't do either. But there was great advantage in the position God gave you. You just didn't do anything with it. Well, somebody might come and then ask another question that's dealt with in verses 3 and 4. And Well, guys, since the Jews didn't follow God's plan, is God's plan derailed? Can can God still save the world with with, with the Jews not fulfilling their end of the deal? And of course, of course, the Lord can save the world. Folks, God's not limited by our inability. He's not limited by our corruptness, our sin. God's will is will be done. God is going to fulfill His purposes. God is going to fulfill His promises. In in verses 5 and 6, he deals, I think, probably back to the moralist who's trying to set this standard. And the question there is, you know, did God come in and set a law, set a bunch of rules that we couldn't keep? 
I mean, if we can't keep the rules, if we can't be made right by the law, then God set up a system where we're going to fail. That's not fair. That's his problem. I guess the idea is if God created the average human to only be able to jump, maybe say three inches to about, what's a good NBA player? What's a vertical jump? 36 inches? 40 inches? Something like that? Okay, so we can only jump somewhere between 3 inches and 40 inches off the ground. And then God comes in and says, now if you want to be righteous, if you want to go to heaven, you need to jump up and touch the ceiling. Well, we would say, that's, that's not fair. God created us with a limit and then set the standard out beyond that. That's kind of what that question to dealing there is. But that's not what God's done, folks. God didn't watch and see what we could do or not do and then set a standard where we failed. The standard comes from what is right and true and good. The standard comes from God. You've heard me say that before. God's commands come from His character. It is what is right. It is what is true. It is what is good. It is right that that is the standard. He hasn't set a moving target. He hasn't hasn't set a standard by which we have no choice but to fail. And then the the last thing that he deals with there in verses 7 and 8 is if God's light, if God's grace shines brighter against the backdrop of our sin, against the backdrop of our darkness, then why does God hold me accountable? I mean, doesn't doesn't it just make God look good how he can come in and save us from our depravity, save us from hell? What difference does it make if I sin? It just makes God look good in the end, right? Kind of a twisted logic, isn't it? But that's kind of how we think. Remember, we're trying to get out of trouble. We're trying to make a case for why we belong into heaven or why this is more God's responsibility than ours. The problem with that logic, whatever God's doing with sin, whatever he's looking at us with that sin, is we're forgetting that all sin is devastating. All sin negatively impacts. You've heard me say before, folks, there's no such thing as a private sin. You see, in our our concepts, as long as I'm not bothering anybody else, as long as I'm not hurting anybody else, or these are just sins in my mind, you've never committed a private sin. You've never committed a sin that does not immediately or in time touch somebody else. You've never committed a sin that will not directly or indirectly touch somebody else. You want the best example of that? Eve. There's nobody that committed a more private sin in humanity than Eve. And there's six billion people today living with the effects of her very private sin. There's no such thing as private sin. It's all devastating. So Paul has made this case. He's answered some of these questions. And now we come to verses 9 to 20. And and, and we're coming to the end of a section. Our first section in this letter. This first section was about man's depravity. And and because of that, our deservedness of God's wrath. And, and as he, Paul comes into verse 9, it's almost like we get to a place where he says, okay, now, if this hasn't been clear, let's get real clear right here, right now, about what the situation is. Let's look and see what, what Paul says. Look with me there, Romans chapter 3, verse 9. It says, what then? Are we any better? Not at all. For we have previously charged that both Jews and Gentiles, that's everybody, are all under sin. As it is written... There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. Together they have become useless. There is no one who does good. There's not even one. 
Their throat is an open grave. They deceive with their tongues. Viper's venom is under their lips. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and wretchedness are in their paths. And the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now what we know, now we know that whatever the law speaks to those who are subject to the law, so that every mouth may be shut and the whole world may become subject to God's judgment. For no flesh will be justified in his sight by the works of the law, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. That's a tough passage, isn't it? I mean, I mean that, that's a that's a pretty harsh look at humanity. You know, I think for a lot of us in here, the idea that that we've all sinned, we've all are worthy or deserving of God's judgment. That's not news to us, is it? I mean, we've heard that. We know that. We know that we've all failed. We've all sinned. But I guess when we come to this idea of not one, I mean, we might think, you know, I, I can look out there at the sea of humanity And in all those people, we know that everybody out there has sinned. Everybody has done wrong and is deserving of judgment. We know that, but we think, you know, surely there's some goodness out there, right? I mean, there's a there's a little bit of goodness in people. There's a you know, especially when you look at humanity as a whole, there's a little bit of goodness. Man, there's somebody that that seeks after God. There's somebody that's trying to please him. But gosh, this passage pretty emphatically says no. No, there, there's not even one. Not one? You know, folks, we go back to the cake here. I, I can make this cake with the, the purest of ingredients, the best ingredients, the most expensive ingredients there are. But that presence of poison, that, that changes everything, doesn't it? That absolutely changes everything. You know, when you look at this passage, look down in your text. In mine, verses 10 to 18 are in bold print. In your Bible, they're probably in bold print, or maybe they're indented, or maybe they're in italics. The the reason that is, most most translations, most of your Bibles, when the New Testament is quoting the Old Testament, it's going to put it in bold or italicize or, or indent it. So when you're looking here at this big section, verses 10 to 18, every one of those verses is a quote from the Old Testament. I, I think that's important to see. I, I think that's important to acknowledge. It's not like Paul just had a bad day, you know. You ever had that? You go out, you know, somebody cuts you off as soon as you pull out of your neighborhood. You know, you get to this store and, 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 and somebody speaks rudely to you. You, you call about a problem and somebody's mean there and pretty soon you say, man, the whole world is going to hell in a handbasket. You know, you, just, you ever been down on humanity? Ever been down on just the whole lot of them? Is, is that where Paul's been? Just, you know, everywhere he went, somebody was mean, rude, wrong. And, he, you know, I'll tell you about it. Man, there's nobody good. Is that what he was doing? No, the, the, these statements aren't a matter of Paul's opinion of humanity. These statements aren't based on Paul's experience with people. As a matter of fact, it's not even about this day. He's quoting the Old Testament. And and this isn't from one passage. These are from multiple passages throughout the Old Testament. In other words, this isn't Paul's idea. This is not the idea of those Old Testament writers. This is what God is saying. This is what God is saying in the 9th century B.C. It's what God is saying in the 7th century B.C. In the the 4th century. It's what He's saying in the 1st century A.D. And it's what He's saying in the 21st century A.D. 
This is God's judgment of watching humanity. This is what he sees day in and day out. Now let's look and see some of these things that are saying here. There is no one righteous, not even one. Now, you know what? The moment you hear no one, not even one, you almost start to think of an exception, don't you? I mean, mean, really, God, there's not one? You're not one. What what about, Lord, what about? And maybe you think of somebody you know. Gosh, my grandma. My my grandma's the godliest, most religious lady I've ever met. Maybe you think of somebody in in history or somebody in society that is just really known for being a, a a very moral person, a very good person. I mean, this passage is saying, man, there's not one. And we say, yeah, but Lord, what about? And we think of somebody really good, don't we? What what about that person? What, What about them? But see, when we say that, when we put that tag on them, a really good person, that's in comparison, isn't it? We're comparing them to others. I mean, just like we can come over here to this cake and we can say, you know, cake number one here is really good compared to cake number two and three. I mean, cake number three is ten times as bad as cake number one, isn't it? So, I mean, this is, this is, I mean, it looks good, it tastes good, everybody would say it is good in comparison to the other pieces, it comes out way ahead. You want to eat it? No, it's not good. The, the, the presence of that sin, the presence of that corruptness means it's not good. See, folks, we're not going to be measured, we're not going to be judged against each other, we're going to be measured against God, who is absolute. Perfect in his purity, in his truth, in his rightness. Now I hear that. I can hear people say, I can hear myself say, well, that's not fair. Man, I don't want to be measured against God. Really, what do you want to be measured against? Does God owe us another standard than himself? Should God give us a lesser standard than what is right and true and good? Is that really what we want in this world? We want a a standard less than that? No, folks, God, God doesn't owe us a lesser standard. Here, I'll judge you by this measuring stick. He's going to judge us by himself based on who he is. We see this passage go on and say there is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. That word understands means to pull together. It, it, kind of the picture of standing there at the kitchen table and you got, you know, that 1500 piece puzzle. You know, all the pieces are exactly the same color. <laughs> and you're supposed to put it together. The word understands here is the idea of putting that puzzle together. To understand is to have the ability to, to take all of the pieces and make them connect. Pull all the pieces together so that you can see The whole picture. Folks, none of us has the ability to pull all the pieces of God's holiness together. I mean, we can read what the Bible is saying. We can define the word holiness. We can kind of think on that. We can't pull together the complete and total and awesome picture of what holiness really is. We can't pull together the complete picture of our sin. We've got a very fragmented view. And that fragmented view is what leads us to say... My my sin's not that bad. You know, my sin's kind of small. We probably wouldn't say this out loud, but I think sometimes we think, how can God really be upset about this? This is such a a small deal. You see, the reason we think that way is because we can't pull it all together. 
We don't understand. We can't pull together the distance between us and God. We can't understand that. It says there's none, not one who seeks. And I think that's one I really struggle with. I say, come on, God. I mean, even religion, even false religion is man's attempt to seek God, isn't it? Man's attempt to find God, to, to run after God, to discover God. How can you say, Lord, that, that nobody seeks you? That just doesn't make any sense. Except maybe if we thought of it this way. No one seeks after God in purity. Not one of us. When we go after God, it's for selfish reasons. You take somebody that is absolutely happy, absolutely satisfied, absolutely fulfilled. Those are not usually our best days of going after God. When do we go after God? When we need something. I need something. I need security about the future. I need help today. I need you to wipe out that person over there. I need you to provide. I need you to protect. I need you to heal. We need something. And folks, part of that's very natural. As a matter of fact, when God reveals Himself, when He introduces Himself to us, in many respects, it's what He can do for us. I can forgive you. I can provide you eternal life. I can make you righteous, which you're not, by yourself. I can do these things. But when it says none seeks after God, it's because none of us seek him except in our selfishness. That's why I, you remember a couple of weeks ago I said religion in its nature is not about God. Religion is just the different ways we've gone about taking care of our need. Religion's about me. Religion's about self. The point I'm making, God is worthy. Completely and totally worthy of our praise, of our devotion, of our obedience, whether we perceive that we're getting anything from Him or not. Can you grasp that concept right there? If God never does a single thing for you, He is worthy of your entire life. If God never gives you a single thing, if to the best of your ability you could say, I don't think God's ever answered a prayer of mine. He is totally worthy of your praise, of your devotion, of your obedience. See, when you pull that together, when you understand that, man, there's nobody that's seeking God like that. Nobody, nobody ever has. It says all, all have turned away. Every person, that word turned away means to bend away. Folks, you realize every single time we sin, we're turning away from God. Every time we're, we're bending away from God, we're bending away from Him, and we're bending toward that which is the exact opposite of Him, that which is antagonistic of Him. I mean, folks, let's just think about that concept right here inside our church family. Now, for many of us, what we're reading about is no longer true of us, right? And we've placed our faith and trust in Christ. We've been forgiven. We've been made a child of God. This status... Verses 10 through 18, this is the status of humanity. This status in Christ is no longer true of us. So a lot of us, this is not true anymore. Now, let's see. Last Sunday, let's say there was 1,500 believers here. No, we, had, we had a lot more than, we had over 2,000 people, almost 2,200 people here last Sunday. But let's say 1,500 of them were believers, okay? 1,500 genuine children of God. Would, that, would, would it be okay to suggest that maybe those 1,500 people each on average sinned twice this week? Two times. Thought something they shouldn't have thought. Did something they should, didn't, shouldn't have done. 
were negligent, didn't do a whole host of things. Did you know God said a regular part of your life is to be encouraging other believers? Did you encourage a believer this week? If you didn't, that would be a sin of negligence. So 1,500 believers, on average, we sinned twice this past week. That means the body of Christ that we call Colonial Heights Baptist Church turned away from God 3,000 times in the last seven days. Did you ever read that verse and think about it like that? I mean, this is about the world that doesn't know Christ. This is about people trying to make themselves righteous. We're the ones who are righteous in Christ. And this week, in the last seven days, this church family. And gosh, I'm, that 3,000, that's probably a pretty gross underestimate, wouldn't you say? Folks, this is what God watches in humanity day in and day out. Year after year, generation after generation. And that is why he is absolutely right and just. Not angry, not frustrated, not not responding in a bad mood, but absolutely right and just when he looks at you and he looks at me and he says, you are not righteous. And to not be righteous makes us fully deserving of God's wrath. We in our lives may have tried to mix into the recipe our intelligence. Look how smart we are. Look what we can figure out. We may have tried to mix in our morality. Look how good we can be. I can love others. I I can do good works. I can do kind deeds. We may have mixed in our religiosity. Look at my church attendance. I went through confirmation. I've had the Lord's Supper. I've been baptized. And we mix in all those duties. But when you mix it all in, what do you got? still have the presence of sin. You still have the presence of corruptness. Folks, chapter 1, verse 18. All the way up, look down in your Bible, to chapter 3, verse 19. Everything we've looked at in what is now almost five complete sermons has all been leading us to the statement in chapter 3, verse 20. All of that has been leading us up to the place where Paul could say, your works are not going to save you. Not your intelligence, not your morality, not your religiosity. None of that is going to make you right with God. None of it. And that's the end of the sermon. Just go home and stew on that for a week. You rotten, corrupt sinner. (laughs) That's the end of my, I got got nothing more, that's it. That's the end of this section. I, I can't leave, can I... Can I just take a peek at the next one? I won't preach on it, I promise. Let's let's just take a peek. We've got to see this. Look down at chapter 3, verse 21. But now. Man, circle the word but. If it's your Bible. (laughs) Circle the word but. and, And from that circle, take a little arrow and point upwards. The word but means in contrast. In contrast to everything said since chapter 1, verse 18. In contrast to the description of me in verses 10 through 18. In contrast to the fact that I am completely and totally worthy of God's wrath. In contrast to that. But now, apart from the law, God's righteousness has been revealed. 
attested by the law and the prophets. That is God's righteousness, not through what kind of recipe I try to make, not through my works and efforts, but God's righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Folks, there is a way. In contrast to what we've done and how we've lived, there is a way. You know what? The last, what is now, five sermons, not fun. Not not fun to get up week after week and talk about how awful we are. But you know what? You and I would not respect. We would not appreciate And we would not reach out and grab the hand of that gracious Jesus Christ. Had we not seen this. Remember what I said a couple weeks ago? You know what makes grace so amazing? It's when I understand how depraved I am. How worthy of God's wrath I am. That's when grace becomes amazing. Not the... Not the most fun two chapters of the Bible to walk through. But necessary. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for letting me know what I'm really like. The Bible also tells me that the the heart is deceptive. The heart will deceive me. I will, I will deceive myself that I'm okay. I will deceive myself into thinking I'm a, I'm a pretty good person. And Lord, we, we live in a world, we don't want to hear that we're told that we, we have failed, that we're sinners. We want to talk about how good we are. God, thank you for the truth. Thank you for the truth. Thank you for not only showing the truth, but God, I can't wait to get to the next verse. I can't wait to come back and continue to unfold this. Thank you for an answer to that problem. Thank you for an answer to that problem. In Jesus Christ. And Lord, for many of us in this room who've received this answer. I pray we'd live like it. I pray we'd not use your forgiveness as a, as a parachute to jump into sin. Think we'll be okay. It'll all work out. God forgives anyway. But I pray your love, your forgiveness, your grace motivates us. Calls us to the holy life you've set out there for us. God, may we live like a thankful people this week. I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.